Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It's my pleasure to be joined by David Healy. Uh, you know, here again, he's he's probably the world's leading expert on PSSD. He's written more about it than anyone else I know. And uh, today we're going to be doing a a, a full download of um, of Dr. Healy's uh, perspective on PSSD, you know, what it is and um, and, and all that. So, uh, David, welcome. Let, let's, let's start off by talking about, you know, what is PSSD? Joseph, PSSD is one of the most unusual and grim conditions uh, that, that the psychotropic drugs we use can cause. Um, way back when I was training first, you know, there was a little awareness that uh, the different drugs could cause different kinds of sexual problems, like they could uh, make you slower to have an orgasm, uh, to ejaculate and things like that. They could cause penile droop and things like that. There was a whole bunch of things that people knew about but didn't, didn't pay too much heed to. Um, but PSSD is an entirely different beast. It's the part of the problem is it's, it causes sexual problems that don't necessarily go away when you stop your pills. Everything else that we used to talk about were things that, you know, would clear up once you halted your pills. And there's an interesting history behind it, which is, um, there's a man called George Beaumont in the UK who was working for Sibagagi. And he had the responsibility to uh, develop and market clomipramine, which these days is widely thought of as been the most potent antidepressant we have. But back in the late 1960s, when it was actually produced, people said, well, we've got lots of tricyclic antidepressants. Who needs another one? Okay. And George was given the job of trying to work out how to move this forward, how to market it. Now, at this stage, it was a drug that was in Europe, but not the United States, not on the US market at all. And George came up with this idea about um, getting in touch with researchers around the place. He noted one or two people had said, look, um, clomiphene is a good drug for OCD. So he chased them and got them to do trials on it and published the papers on it. And in the course of doing this, some of the people who he um, talked to said, well, you know, one of the interesting things about these drugs is that they cause sexual dysfunction in the sense that, you know, you can have a premature ejaculation problem, you can take clomipramine, and it'll help cure it, okay? And George hit upon this uh, idea, and this is around 1973, so it's going way back. Uh, he hit on this idea about running uh, an article in one of the lower class mass circulation newspapers in the UK. And it was about this starlet, this film star who worked on TV series and things like that. Uh, and he had this article which said that, you know, she was wonderfully happy with clomipramine. And it's a very daring article to run because when you read the article, what it was was, you know, she had a boyfriend and she was happy because the boyfriend, when he took 10 milligrams, now the usual clinical dose is 150 milligrams, when he took 10 milligrams, 
30 minutes before they made love, he was able to last much longer, which left her happy. So this is mm-hmm. roughly what the article said. And this got word out, well, yes, that these drugs can do interesting things. And George went on to, I mean, he worked for you know, the pharmaceutical companies, but he did a good deal of research on what was actually happening when we give uh, the tricyclic antidepressants what difference do they make when people make love? So he began to open up this field. And one of the other things he did, and this was at a point when his OCD work, okay, had really got places and, and clomipramine ultimately ended up on the market in the United States for OCD. And the reason all of the SSRIs uh, have been marketed for OCD is, well, um, clomipramine is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and it's good for OCD, so maybe these other SSRIs are too. At the time, uh, one of the big deals was behavior therapy, and a guy called Isaac Marx was the guru for this. He was the one who said, look, you don't want to be using drugs for OCD, you want to be using behavior therapy. And Marx was, Marx and George knew each other, uh, were at war slightly, you know, Marx is saying use behavior therapy, Mm -hmm. and talked, I mean, I can recall being at a meeting where he talked and said, you know, there are awful problems with these drugs, you don't want to use them too quickly. Uh, He had a nun that he was treating for OCD, and when she stopped the clomipramine that she had been on, she was having multiple repeated orgasms. And Mm. this was terribly distressing for her. Now, this is a condition that we call these days persistent genital arousal disorder. And it's the mirror image of PSSD, which is in one case, your genitals go numb. And and actually within 30 minutes of the first SSRI pill you take, or the first drug that's a potent serotonin reuptake inhibitor, your genitals go numb to some extent. Some people don't recognize it, but you can test them and show that they're actually less sensitive than they were beforehand. And this probably goes hand in hand with the emotional numbing that these drugs cause. So, but anyway, what you get in a proportion of people is just the opposite genital irritability. And this seems to happen to women more than men. And the oddity about both PSSD and PGAD is, you know, you can have hints that you have it when you're on the drugs because you're more numb or more irritable or whatever than the usual person who goes on these drugs. But it gets even worse when you stop. And this is very like part of dyskinesia, which is a problem. You know, you can have dys kinesias on the antipsychotic when you're on them, you can actually probably have TD when you're on the drugs, but it's most clear when you stop the drugs and the problem gets even worse and keeps on going for months or years afterwards. And that's very much what happens with PSSD and PGAD also. And one of the other interesting things is SSRIs are not the only drugs that can cause this. We can get it with isotretinoin for acne. That's Accutane, and you can also get a very similar problem with with finasteride, which is used by young men for hair loss. So that's roughly you know, the history of where all these things come. One of the interesting thing um, come from one of the interesting things is the companies before they brought the SSRIs on the market gave them to healthy volunteers, and one of the things that was very clear with some of 
the SS Rice was the healthy volunteers young man complained bitterly of sexual dysfunction when they were on these drugs for just a week or two. And in some cases, there are hints that the problem went on for a period of time after the healthy volunteer trial, which is only, say, a two-week trial. After the trial halted, there were people complaining about ongoing problems afterwards. And we now know that uh, the first reports to regulators about enduring sexual dysfunction after an SSRI stopped was roughly around 1987. So before most of them came on the market, there was an awareness among the companies and regulators that problems like this could happen. But when the drugs came in the market, people like me were told, and I'm sure people like you as well, maybe it was a little different when you actually got to hear about them. But when I got to hear about them, when they came out first, uh, you know, we were told, well, yeah, you can have a problem when you go on these drugs, but you know, everything's going to be fine once you halt them. And if you want to go away for a romantic weekend, you just halt the pills for the weekend and everything will be just fine. That's Mm. what the company said, but that's not what they knew. And that's not what's turned out to be the case. And um, so, David, could you could you tell me a little bit about the you know the diagnostic criteria for this? You know, how do you know whether you have it? Okay, well, one of the key things is that you get genitally numb. If you're not genitally numb or irritable, then you don't have one of these problems. And there's all sorts of other problems all of us can have. You know, if you're male, you can have an erectile dysfunction, but this is not. PSSD. You may get erectile dysfunction with PSSD, but if you don't have the genital numbing, then you haven't got this problem. And part, I mean, when people with PSSD um, hear about this, they say, well, it's much more than just genital numbing. And it is. There's emotional numbing. There's a general autonomic dysregulation and things like that. But they're not diagnostic in their own right. They can happen with SSRI withdrawal also. It's the genital numbing that's very uh, as specific to PSSD. And it's the reason why you can't have, as some doctors say to this day, that, you know, well, actually, these people are just depressed. Depression causes us to lose libido and not be able to function properly. No, it doesn't. You can, you know, you have to be melancholic uh, before you lose libido when you're uh, clinically depressed. The usual kinds of states that uh, people get SSRIs for are often the kinds of states that many of us, you know, eat more or make love more in order to try and cope with. It's, it's, they don't profoundly lead to loss of libido. What you get in PSSD, though, is a kind of domino effect. The first thing that happens, as I say, within half an hour of your first pill is you become genitally numb. And pretty quickly, often within the first time that you make love, your orgasms will be to some extent muted, whether you're male or female. Over time, they get even more mute and maybe absent. And maybe as a consequence of all that, you know, things not functioning, orgasms not being what they used to be, you start losing interest, you start losing libido. But they're all knock-on consequences, uh, um, it seems to me. And the other big thing then is, if the genital numbing is the key to the whole thing, the question is, where do, where is the problem 
located? Is it in your brain or is it peripheral? Is it in the genitals, for instance? My hunch from the start has always been that it's actually a peripheral problem. People, because it happens to them because they're, they're on an antidepressant, think, well, antidepressants go into your brain and they do things in there, which maybe they do, but, you know, it, it's, it seems to me that the key issue here is you've got a peripheral sensory problem, uh, not a brain problem. The people who think their brains have been ruined because of SSRIs probably haven't got a brain problem and their brains are probably fine. And if we can just clear up the peripheral problem, everything will actually come back to normal. That's my hunch, uh, my hope. Yeah. Yeah. And um, a question about the genital numbing. Is is the nature of the genital numbing while you're on the drug similar to, to what it is like when you stop the drug or does it change in any way just from your experience? Well, there's a wide range of things there, which is uh, there's a group of people who, when they go on the drugs, uh, aren't awfully aware that they're genitally numb. As I say, you can run tests on them and show that even the people who aren't particularly aware that they're all that numb are actually more numb than they were before. But you get then a range of of things that can happen to people from some genital numbness to profound genital and groin numbness. I mean, it's not just the genital area, it can be your entire groin, okay? Uh, and it can be marked. Uh, and I guess the general sense, although I could be wrong on this, is that it's the people who have the more marked problem that are more likely to go on to PSSD. Having said that, what you get reported from loads of people is that, you know, well, I had some genital numbness while I was on the pills, and then I stopped and it got worse. Okay, so that's that's the usual thing. But my hunch is it's a bit like TD that, you know, you can have the problem while you're on the drug. It's just you don't know you have the problem. You think things are going to be fine once you hold. But there's some people that we can guess, because it's more severe to begin with, probably, that you kind of figure that this is a person, when they stop, it's not going to go away. So so what do you think is going on, say, like, you, know, you, you have a young chap, you know, they've never had any difficulty maintaining an erection or reaching an orgasm. They go on a medication for a year. And um, when they come off, you know, they, they don't have general anesthesia. In fact, you know, it just, uh, but, but they, they're unable to maintain an erection or, or reach an orgasm. I mean, is it, I mean, does this person have a PSSD kind of adjacent problem? Like if, especially if say they're, they're not depressed or anxious anymore and they're just like, hey, what happened? I mean, what do you think about those people who don't neatly fit, I guess, into that category with prominent general anesthesia? Yeah, and it's kind of hard to know, okay? And um, the, I mean, my hunch is that there's a wider range of problems than we really know about. You've got the classic PSSD case where you've got mm -hmm. gentle numbness, uh, and it will last for months or years. But you've also got a bunch of people who, yes, when they stop treatment, maybe aren't all that gently numb, but things just aren't working. And over a period of months, three, six months, maybe nine months, things do slowly come back to normal. And whether we should actually call that classic PSSD or not is a bit unclear, okay? Uh, at the moment, the 
criteria say you have to have the condition lasting for more than three months. But, you know, that's just an arbitrary line. Uh, Mm -hmm. It does seem that there are people who don't have the full clinical picture and do recover uh, over a period of time. But, you know, there's a bunch of other interesting things about this. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a condition called coral. Have you? Like mad cow disease or like... No, 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 no. It's K-O-R-O. And I can remember Mm -hmm. back when I was training first, there were people uh, talking about unusual and esoteric psychiatric syndromes. Is this the Malaysian thing? Yes, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. okay. And it was the kind of thing that I say, trainee in the West, you thought, oh, that's great. It's over in Malaysia, a long way from here. I don't (laughs) need to worry about it. And yeah. it's strange. All these people over there must be very strange people. It, it's And just for the listeners, it's where men, a bunch of men, say that their penis is shrinking into their body, and they're very worried it's going to disappear completely. And they take all sorts of steps to try and make sure that it can't disappear. And, you know, I sort of thought when I read this first was, this this is pretty weird, and it's clearly a mental illness. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about PSSD that's, uh, you know, become a, a little bit more clear. And it's not just PSSD, it's post-finasteride syndrome also. You know, they what you have is a bunch of men, they don't all say it, but there's a bunch of them say, look, you know, one of the things that happens is my penis has shrunk. And again, I haven't been paying too much heat to that until recently when what we've got is loads of people who've got PSSD and PFS and things like that who are doing research on it. Some of them have PhDs themselves. Some of them are doctors. Some don't have any of these things. They're just, they're just highly motivated to try and chase the issues and work out what's going on. And one of them recently was in touch with me and said, look, you know, we know that there's a molecule called kispeptin that's heavily involved. And there's a recent clinical trial of it showing that in people who have hypoactive sexual desire disorder, that this can help. Okay. And one of the interesting things is it's very heavily involved in the ovaries and ovulation. And it's also involved in the adrenal glands. And there's some evidence that when it's missing, when the adrenal links to the genital area aren't working right, that one of the things that happens in rats is your penis shrinks, and when you give the rats kispeptin, it grows again. And one of the things that happened what? in the what? clinical trial of of this in men mm-hmm. who had hypoactive sexual uh, desire disorder uh, is that they reported, and this was measured, that their penis becomes enlarged again and more like what you would hope it would be. So... This left me wondering about all these poor guys in Malaysia who were complaining about Koro, whether something has happened to them that's affecting their kispeptin, and maybe their problems weren't as mental as we thought they were. Maybe there's a real physical trigger to these things that people at the time didn't pay any heed to. And that's one of the things that's still a big issue now, which is some people with PSSD, when they go along to doctors now, are told, frankly... You've got a somatic delusion. There's nothing else wrong with you. You know, you're either depressed, deluded, or, or whatever, and you should take an antidepressant or you should take an antipsychotic. And this shows lack of insight on the part of doctors, not their patients, you know. Um, so, anyway. 
Yeah, puts them exposes them to more risks, and then also, you know, I, 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 you know, I could imagine, you know, that there's thousands of people with PSSD sitting in sex therapists' office all across the world at the moment, you know, thinking that something else is going on, you know, w- wasting their time and efforts there looking for something that they'll never find to 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 explain what's going on. Um, and, on that line, on yeah. that line, there's a recent video uh, that uh, the International uh, uh, Society for Sexual Medicine put up that had a fairly well-known figure in the United States called uh, uh, Anita Clayton saying that, you know, she didn't think PSSD was a real condition. It's just people who are depressed and they haven't been treated properly. And she's recommending vortioxetine. Oh, God. Uh, And the problem with that is, you know, Vortioxetine essentially is an SSRI that makes people suicidal, just like SSRIs do. And we've had, you know, a lot of reports of people getting PSSD from vortioxetine. Uh, you know, so there are a lot of big name doctors out there. When you come along and talk about PSSD, they say, this can't be happening. You are depressed. We just need to treat you with a bigger dose of the drugs than we gave you before. That's yeah, awful. Um, I wanted to ask you on another thing, you know, I've, I've, I've chatted with a couple of folks who have PSSD and sometimes, you know, a lot of them describe like cognitive problems, you know, they feel cognitively devastated and that they're in this amotivated, apathetic state. What do you, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think there's some unifying pathology that's linking, I guess, the sensory problems in their groin to the cognitive impairment and amotivation that they're having or... Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah, no, sure. And that's a key question. And again, 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 people say to me, at least you're too genitally focused. Okay. And I'm saying, well, I'm just genitally focused because, you know, you've got an inch or two of skin here that's gone numb. If we can explain why that's gone numb, we'll be able to answer the problem. But clearly, it's not just that. And it's, as I said, there's an emotional numbness there. And I figure that can be explained by saying what the SSRIs do is cause a loss of reactivity. So this is why they're good with OCD. You know, you come down the stairs, the kids have thrown all the shoes all over the place at the end of the stairs. They haven't got them lined up neatly and you get bothered. But if you're on your SSRI for your OCD, you sail past all these shoes that are not ordered neatly. You know, you're not as reactive to them. Now, that's my hunch is it's that's a general sensory problem that you know you're not noticing things uh the same way and you're not getting as bothered about them but it's the skin around the body it's not just the the genital area that can be more numb on these drugs so it's the emotional numbness people talk about my hunch is it's a sensory problem and it's what's happening is the sensations we all normally have aren't lighting the brain up the way it would be normally lit up. You know, there's less input to the brain, which leaves your brain feeling that it's kind of dead. It's not processing things the way it should do and things like that. But my hunch is if we can work out what's causing the sensory problem and put it right, people are going to find their brains come back to normal as well. They light up again. That yeah, I, think that's, I think that's really well said. I mean, t- to me, I would say it also feels like it's it's like they lose sensory pleasure. You know, they, you know, the, the people I talk to, they say, you know, I'll hug my mum and dad or my child, and I and I won't feel those same 
feelings that I used to feel. I'll listen to my favorite album from childhood that usually brings back nostalgia and memories and joy, and it's just blunted. Um, and so the, the, this whole element of sensory pleasure globally, and at least some of them, is just so muted, and uh, they feel kind of alien. They go, I know who I am, and I'm not myself, because, the, I mean, all these things are shut down. It's really disorienting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, um, yeah. I think that gets it well. And it's an awfully profound problem. You have people feeling, well, if I'm going to be feeling like this for the rest of my life, is there any point going on living? And yeah. uh, some of them kill themselves, and some of them figure, uh, let me get in touch with uh, medical uh, assistance in dying program and just end it all because there's no point going on. On, the, on that note, let's talk a little bit about prognosis. I mean, you've probably, I mean, you've read more of these reports than anyone in the world, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure it's over a thousand now. How, how many is it roughly, David? How many reports of PSSC have you read? Certainly well over a thousand, well over. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard yeah. to know just what. And, and you know, uh, you learn a lot in terms of uh, 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 the way we function. People give you details. Give uh, On uh, the reports, they give me details and things like that, uh, which they're a rich trove of materials. Uh, you know, it'd be great. I mean, what we need to get is some researchers uh, uh, involved in this. I'm sure there's researchers out there that have the answer to the problem. <clears throat> they just don't know there's a problem they have the answer to. So it's yeah. trying to connect them with the people who have the the problem. And I'm sure we're going to find an answer. And somebody who comes up with an answer is going to get a Nobel Prize for it because this this can't be explained in terms of receptor pharmacology and things like that. Having made all those points, one of the other interesting things is there's no doubt that people, even after years, can recover. And there's also no doubt that the damage isn't permanent in the sense of people have brief windows. They may be on some other pill and antibiotic of some sort that they halt. And for a few days after they halt, the other pill everything can seemingly come back to normal before it sort of it goes goes wrong again so well let me let me ask you that one directly then how would you describe the prognosis of this um this condition after you develop it yeah well the um it's very hard to we don't we don't know because there's a lot of people who recover after a period of years okay yeah. uh, and the last thing they ever want to revisit is the idea that they had this problem. They're there thinking, you know, let me just get on with life. They don't want to come back and let people like me know that they're recovered. You know, I might find that by accident. So we don't know how many people actually, or what proportion of people actually recover and just what the windows are, you know. Um, my hunch is that there's probably a fairly significant proportion of people who will recover after three, four, five years, but it can take mm -hmm. that long. We also know that there's a group of people who 20 years later still have the same problem. So you know, mm -hmm. there's others that just don't recover, uh, at least not in the short term. The big issue here is how do you hold out hope for the people who have the condition? Giving them, you know, uh, at the message, of course, this recovers and it might only be a year or two, might keep them alive, but it's not the truth. You know, there's a lot of people that it takes a lot longer than that. And it's very, very hard to know exactly 
what to say to people. Other than there's an increasing number of people who are aware of the problem, an increasing number of people who seem to be doing research on it. There's all the people with the problem who are doing their own research and getting places slowly. Uh, you know, so there's hope from that point of view. It's the whole thing, actually, one of the key things to bring home to people, I think, is the whole thing is rather like AIDS in the 1980s, which is you have a bunch of people who don't want to admit they have the problem, like they didn't want to admit they had AIDS, and other people now with PSSD don't want to let the world know that, you know, I've got this awful condition and I can't make love, I can't be, you know, the kind of person that I thought I was and would like to be and things like that. Uh, but you've got an increasing number of people with PSSD, like the group with AIDS, who are beginning to mobilize and come out and say, yes, we have the condition and people need to do something about this because it's an awful condition. But a bit like AIDS, you had two groups of people. You had the people with AIDS who figured we need to work with the system. We need to work with the National Institutes of Health. We need to run clinical trials and things like that. And then you had the group of people who are more activists who said, no, we're going to break into the National Institutes of Health and hold people hostage and say, you know, you've got to research this uh, until we actually find the answer. And it's the same among uh, people with PSSD as well. You've got people who are awfully desperate who hear of a lab that may be doing some work in this area and get in touch with the lab and, and, and besiege it almost. And then there's the others who recognize that if we're going to find an answer to this, we've got to be methodical. So, you know, it, it, it's it's hugely difficult and people are reacting in a sense the way you'd um, expect. You know, they're not all doing uh, the same thing. Some are more desperate and challenging the system and others are trying to be more methodical and things like that. So, yeah. And, and David, what do you think is... What are the current top theories out there about the level, you know, about where the lesion is or where the pathology is? Um, you know, I've heard small fiber neuropathy being mentioned. I was wondering if you could give us the overview of, you know, what, you know, what are the, yeah, the the leading uh, theories about this? Yeah, so that links in neatly to the question of can we get a test? Because one of the problems is people go to the doctor and say, look, I have this. And he or she says, well, no, you don't. This is all in your mind. And this is where having a test like a small fiber neuropathy biopsy, showing on a biopsy that, look, there's a loss of the small fiber nerve endings. That'd be great. Uh, it's very difficult to persuade neurologists to do this kind of thing. And they usually do it around the ankle area. And they usually do it in older people. And when you do it in younger people uh, around the ankle, uh, you know, you find that maybe they've got a low normal range, but, you know, it's still falling inside the normal range. Now, is this abnormal given their age? We don't really know, okay? The other thing that's coming out is that some of the autoimmune antibodies when people get tested for antibodies, they've got antibodies to the ACE2 receptor, and they've also got antibodies to muscarinic receptors. And this, this kind of suggests that there's an autoimmune problem here. One of the other things that we're trying to explore at the moment is what's called corneal confocal microscopy, which is one of the spots in the 
body, which people don't realize, is the most densely innervated parts of us. It is the cornea of the eye, which you've just rubbed there. Uh, and uh, interestingly, just about 10 years ago, people began to realize in neuropathy, diabetic neuropathy are drug-induced neuropathies, okay, uh, that you can spot in the cornea of the eye, that there's a whole bunch of changes to the nerve endings there. And what we're hoping to get done over the next while is to check and see whether people with PSSD, uh, drug-induced neuropathy, if they've got problems that show up on, on CCM, as it's called. But here's the rub. Among the small fibers we've got, there's the alpha ones and alpha delta and there's C fibers. But within the C fiber group, there's a group called C-touch fibers. And, you know, when I touch you, for instance, you can feel my finger on you and uh, you can locate. I mean, if you had your eyes shut and I tried to touch your back, you'd be able to locate just where I've put my finger, okay? And that's what's called discriminative touch. But there's also a bunch of fibers that mediate uh, more effective touch, so that if it was your partner stroking you, uh, that's the kind of fiber that will pick up that and you feel it's pleasurable. Now, the problem we've got is in the cornea of the eye around the ankle, we're going to have a lot of small fibers, but do we have these C-touch fibers? Because if we don't, and if they're the ones that are the problem, then biopsies and things like that aren't going to show us that people with PSSD who unquestionably have a neuropathy, that, I mean, there isn't going to be a test which shows this. So what I don't know at this point in time is whether there's a test that will pick up missing CT fibers. And that's what I'm hoping uh, 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 the cornea of the eye will have, but we're just going to have to wait and see. And anything in the pipeline for this at the moment, or are you essentially just waiting for, I guess, people to come back with reports who have heard about this and saying, hey, I've got access to someone who believes, you know, a, you know, a, a neuro-ophthalmologist who believes me, he's going to look at it and I'm going to send you the results. Is that, is we, are we kind of just waiting for things to trickle in? Like well, that? a little bit of the problem, yeah, no, a little yeah. bit of the problem is that if the average ophthalmologist who they hear from a person who's been on, on antidepressants, they're going to think, well, that's all in the mind problem. And they're going to hear about a genital problem. They're going to say, that's nothing to do with your eyes. So they're not going to do the test for you. Okay. What we've had to do is try and locate some research labs who, mm -hmm. and let them know about the problem. And yes, we've got some promising leads. And I'm, and you don't want just one person to go along because for, uh, if, You've got a new problem like this, and with corneal confocal microscopy, there can be a loss of nerve fibers, a loss of fiber length, a loss of fiber density, and there can also be uh, what are called dendritic cells there, okay? So it's going to take one lab, one person in a lab interested in the problem, seeing at least five people, I think, to see can they spot what's going on here. Just doing yeah. the usual CCM isn't actually going to produce an answer. What do, what do I tell people if they come to me and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to, to go and do this. I'll get on an airplane to contribute to this. I'll fly anywhere. 
should I, should I tell them to email you or, or or something like that? Well, how do how do I get these people to to that place? Okay, well, I think we have a group of volunteers who are going to do it. I think we have a lab, okay, mm-hmm. and I think that's going to give us an answer. Is this worth doing? Now, what people can do in the meantime, and this can be anywhere in the world they're in, they can. Ch- I mean, CCM is a thing that lots of labs are beginning to get. Okay, so you need to check in a place near you whether they have a machine. And hopefully in the next few months, we're going to be able to tell people either there's no point doing CCM because it's not showing anything, or else we'll be able to tell people, this is what you want to ask the ophthalmologist or the optometrist to look for. And it's going to be better if we can give them a strong lead, like this is what you need to look for. Okay. I can't wait to hear more. Um, yeah. So so the, so the next thing... Um, where do people get kispeptin? I mean, is that uh, I mean, is that just a experimental drug, or is this something that's on the market somewhere? Yeah, it's an uh, it's a drug that uh, you can, uh, there's a company. We've got a risk post recently, which gives you exactly where you can go to get it. Trouble is, it's an intravenous injection at the moment. It's not not intravenous. I think it may be intramuscular, but it's an injection. And uh, it does help hypoactive sexual uh, uh, desire disorder, but it's probably not going to help PSSD. Uh, I know some people who've got PFS who have actually got hold of it and tried it out and it hasn't helped them. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that we're learning uh, as we go along. Uh, there's people taking huge risks, trying out things like this, which, you know, they, you know, which um, makes sense based on the research that they're doing. These are things that are worthwhile to try so that we know whether they're going to work or not. But for the moment, kispeptin, um, while it looks hugely interesting, doesn't seem to be the answer to either PFS or PSSD or... Yeah, so so I guess it may. I mean, it may really depend on the on the symptoms that you're having. Whether something that's like that is going to be useful, and it may just be like uh, almost like using Viagra for PSSD. You know, certainly not treating the underlying condition, but if your main problem is maintaining uh, an erection, you know, that might get you a little further along. You know, even if it doesn't fully treat it. So it's kind of just trying these 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 different symptomatic treatments to see to see if anything helps just make it a little bit better while you wait for the recovery sure well this is one of the binds there's a bunch of people uh in uh uh, uh the field who say look you know there are lots of little things we can do and they think it's a good idea to tell people yes there are little things like trying viagra and things like that uh there's a lot of other people, though, who when they go along for that kind of treatment, the little things don't really amount to enough. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so it's kind of, I mean, you know, it's tricky. It's helpful in terms of keeping hope there and trying to keep people going until we have the real answer. But I don't think the little things as such, uh, you know, the things that you think might work, like Viagra, uh, don't, don't actually seem to work, at least mm-hmm. not as well as we would hope. Yeah. Well, I think you've anticipated what my next question was going to be. I mean, uh, just from your interaction with the community, what are some of the things that people have said have helped, even even if it's not for everyone, you know, if, if it's not a blanket statement, just maybe 
something that's popped up in one or two case reports where someone said, you know, this helped me, even if someone else said, you know, it did nothing. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's um, emerged for me, and um, it came as a little bit of a surprise, uh, was the idea that the anticholinergic group of drugs seemed to have promise. And one of the interesting things here is that for about 10 years or so, there's been evidence that drugs like benztropine and drugs like that can help regenerate small fiber nerves. For people who've got diabetic neuropathy in animals, who've got these things, you can show it clearly. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things about all this is that um, the anticholinergic group of drugs are a group of drugs that people think are useless. They're no good for anything. They only cause problems. But that's probably not the case. And if you think about the kinds of effects they have, you know, they tend to be more euphoriant uh, than the other drugs we have. Uh, and it now looks, as I say, that they do help regenerate uh, nerve fiber endings. So, that's a group of drugs for people to think about, do a bit of research about. You can get hold of them quite easily and maybe try them out. The only thing is, if the problem is because we've lost small fiber nerve endings and things like that, these things take months to regrow. So you need to be patient and maybe try out a treatment for three to six months before you conclude that it's not actually working. Could you tell us uh, uh, anything about uh, these cases? I mean, is this a theoretical thing or is this something that one a couple cases reported, hey, you know, I started some cogentin, you know, 0.5 BID and, you know, I've noticed an improvement three months from now. I'm not really sure what it is. Like, I, like where did this, uh, this thing come from? Well, it, it kind of came in the first instance from work done in at the Scripps Institute. And this was published, uh, you know, 10 years ago or more, where Merck all of a sudden uh, decided to remove cogentin from the U.S. market uh, on the basis of this report from uh, you know, the Scripps Institute, which showed that cogentin was causing remyelination of nerves. Okay. And um, the idea at the time was that there's not, I mean, people didn't think it was the anticholinergic action that was doing it. They thought at a low dose, this drug must be doing something else that's different. We can find out what it is and bring some new compound on the market and which, which, for which we'll be able to charge vastly more than you can for an old drug like cogentin. That was the idea, but it turns out it looks like it's actually the anticholinergic effects that are doing it. I've got a few people to, try it out. And this is one of you know, the problems we've got, which is you get people who go on these drugs, they get hold of it, they go on the drug, and it looks like it helps, but you don't hear from them again. You know, they don't want to get back in touch with the people that they link to the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's hints that these things can be a benefit and the animal work looks quite good and the clinical trials that are going on in diabetic neuropathy look quite good. And the clinical trials going on as well with cancer chemotherapy. You know, the drugs you give to treat cancers can cause peripheral neuropathy, uh, as can alcohol. And so we recognize that drugs can cause a problem like PSSD, for instance, but no one wants to think that one of our favorite drugs, the SSRIs, could be doing something nasty like this. We're happy to blame alcohol and drugs you shouldn't use. And cancer chemotherapy, well, you know, you're taking very toxic drugs to save a life. But actually, 
drugs, the drugs we use are not just the SSRIs, they're probably among the commonest causes of peripheral neuropathy of various sorts. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just thinking about chemotherapy. That's, you know, PSSD could be a reasonable trade-off for someone with breast cancer or someone with, uh, you know, uh, you know, multiple myeloma or something like that. But for garden variety, mild depression or anxiety, I mean, it is just a nightmare. I mean, the, the yeah. risk completely outweighs the benefit. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think on a more general note, I mean, I've landed at a place with the antidepressants where, I mean, it's only for the most severely depressed and anxious individuals when all else has failed. I mean, when when you when you look at things through through this lens, when they cause could cause something like PSSD. I mean, that's. I mean, you're you're probably aware of this. I mean, they're, they're recommended first line treatments for anxiety and depression in the U.S. I mean, it's it's right mm-hmm. there, and you know the guidelines, which which I think is crazy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's a little more sense, I think, in the UK. I don't know what Canada is like. Do you do, do they do you know if they recommend them first line in Canada, or is it more like? Yeah, no, no, uh, no. I think uh, you know the Canadian scene is very like the US scene, uh, okay. and it's one where you get put on pills, and the pills don't seem to be to work. We figure you need a higher dose rather than yeah. to hold the pill, and we add in more and more. So routinely, more and more, you're seeing people around five or ten different psychotropic drugs rather than just one and and you know they begin with a reasonably mild problem and end up with a basket full of drugs yeah well that's all i have time for today uh david this is i mean it's been so good to talk to you about this for for anyone that made it this long in the interview and uh, i'm sure there are some people who are very interested in this because i have a lot of pssd folks who are now stopping by the channel in the comments below, I would like you to ask questions because um, I I will get in touch with David again and I'll, I'll ask him if he's kind enough to come back. And so the more, the merrier. Please l- list them in the comments below and we'll and we'll do this again sometime. So, David, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure. Yes, it's great to talk to you as always. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, let you enjoy your weekend. Thanks, David. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittduringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.